Hi, and welcome to Local Waves. This is a four-part podcast created by National Museums NI in partnership with the Northern Ireland Science Festival, where we take some time out to chat to four people from across Northern Ireland who interact with the sea in different ways. My name is Claire Ablett, and I'm curator of transport at the Ulster Transport Museum. Part of our collection includes boats that were locally made for particular areas around our coast. We felt that during this period of lockdown, when people are looking to get out into nature and explore our shoreline, was the perfect time to find out how people today are interacting with the water, how these activities help their mental health, and re-establish that connection with the sea. At the end of each podcast, relax as we take a minute out of our day to listen to the sounds of our local waves. In this first episode, we kick off by speaking to legendary surfer Al Menny about his local waves. As well as surfing some of the biggest waves in the world, Al has also written several books around the subject with a focus on overcoming and dealing with anxiety and fear. His most recent project has been a sponsored 100km swim in the darkness to raise awareness of depression in this particularly difficult period of the pandemic. In our chat, he describes what it's like to ride a 70-foot wall of water and how his time in the sea has impacted on other areas of his life. These podcasts were recorded from home as we didn't have access to our usual studio, so please excuse any background noise towards the end of the interview. Hi Al, welcome to our Local Waves podcast. Thanks so much for talking to us today. No worries, thanks for having me on. So the podcast is Local Waves, so the first question I want to ask you is where your local waves are. I live on the north coast up here and... I, I would say all all the ways here here my local waves like I surf regularly all along the north coast from Port Ballantrae to as far over as McGilligan so the whole north coast. That's quite a playground you have. Yes, or I should say my territory. It's my territory. <laughs> <laughs> so you're most well known for your surfing. How did you get into surfing in the first place? I got into surfing through just my love off the sea I was when I was a kid like I was running around the beach here at Castle Rock um, in my nappy since I was born you know and uh, gradually progressed into you know had a little boogie board and a little polystyrene surfboard and then um, I was water skiing by the age of six and you know it just sort of became a natural progression that I wanted to get into surfing so yeah, that's eventually what I what I did. And at that time, there wasn't really any surfers around here. There was, you know, one or two of the older guys would turn up now and again. But it was just really my brother and I here at the at Castle Rock. And what inspired you to progress to the big wave surfing? I think the progression from small waves to big waves for me is just a natural. It's just a natural thing, to be honest. For me, it seems natural to get good at small stuff and then progress to big stuff, which is more challenging as it is in lots of other areas of life. So it just kind of seemed normal to go out when it was as big, you know, go out when it was big and go out when it was small and eventually ride bigger and bigger waves. And um, I've just always had that sort of desire to go out in those conditions. And I don't know if it's a challenge that attracts me to it or what it is in particular, but there's there's just something that I have to always try and go out in the bigger day and push myself a little further. And there's always a wonder, I think, and I ponder what, what it would be like out there. So I end up out there. A lot of surfers have this competitive edge and that's why they get involved in a lot of the contests. Did you take part in any of those sorts of things when you were starting out? 
I didn't start competing until I was 14. I actually didn't know you could compete at surfing at such a young age in Ireland and until then, so I might have started earlier. Yeah, so I, I did. I took part in, in the whole Irish circuit for years as a junior. And I have to say, like, surfing competition really helps you progress as a surfer, as it does in lots of other things. You know, competition helps develop performance and uh, and resilience. So, yeah, I did that when I, was a, when I was a kid, right through my teens, and then I progressed on to higher levels of competition um, at the European World Championships and Pro Tour and then into the Big Wave World competition as well. So I don't see competition as like a major part of my life. I don't do it now really, but it was definitely of benefit to me growing up because it made me very, very focused and determined. Like you see in other sports, most competitive athletes are, they progress because they're competitive. Was there any standout moment that made you think, oh my goodness, I have to try big wave surfing. It looks amazing. There wasn't anything in particular where I decided, where, where I thought, oh, look at that. That looks great. I'm going to go and do that. But there was one in, one thing that comes out, that sort of stands out in my mind, one time stands out in my mind. I was sitting on my bed here in Castle Rock. Um, Sorry, I was sitting on my brother's bed, actually. He was sleeping, I think. And I had on a video from California. And, and the video was based on a big wave surfing location in, in the north of California with the name Mavericks. It's called Mavericks. And um, I was 13 at the time. And I remember sitting watching it and actually saying the words, I want to do that one of these days. And it's funny because most surfers or most people would assume a kid would be aspiring to, you know, the sun-kissed beaches, you know, the whole image of the blonde-haired, tan surf dude. And, but that didn't really sort of resonate with me. These guys in Northern California were in the depths of winter wearing, you know, big thick wetsuits. They were on these big massive boards and they were paddling in with their, you know, bare hands and they were big sort of like burly manly men, warriors in the sea, I suppose. And, you know, at the age of 13, I suppose that's what I saw myself as, this little, you know, ocean warrior, I suppose. And so I could really relate to them. So that's the kind of thing which stuck in my mind. And as I progressed through my teens, it was always in my mind that I wanted to do this. And by the time I was 22, I actually went to Mavericks in California and I spent about a month there the first year and, and surfing there eventually. So, yeah, I'd probably say the most definitive point in my childhood was probably that event when I was 13 watching that that film. It's amazing that that resonated with you at such a young age and I love the fact that you describe yourself as a little ocean warrior because clearly your connection to the sea is what really drives you to get in the water and surf as big a waves as possible. Yeah it's um I think as well like that you say about a little warrior there whenever you grow up surfing on the north coast if you want to progress on the north coast you have to fight through lines of whitewater and for anyone who doesn't understand like um, if you look at the waves coming in they come in in lines we refer to them as lines and i know that often makes them sound very flat and 2d but they're you know they're it's a line of whitewater wave approaching the sea or approaching the beaches comes in in lines and in order to get through those waves you have to really fight and battle to get out through them to get get beyond them to then catch the unbroken wave as surfers were trying to catch the unbroken wave just as it's about to crest and about to break that's where the most energy is that's where it allows us to ride it so yeah living on the north coast we don't have the luxury of some of these you know other types of waves that you can get where there's deep water channels around the waves that allow surfers to use the deep water to get to um the area 
on the beach where they would catch the wave more easily, we have literally just long lines of white water coming towards shore. So it means you have to be a bit more of a fighter to get through that, to progress and become a better surfer on the North Coast. Do you think that surfers in Ireland are a bit more hardy and tough than the rest of the world because of the cold water? We're we're the hardest. <laughs> we're the hardest surfers. Like, there's, no, there's no more hardcore place to be a surfer in the world, really. Like we're we're pretty far north, and we've got really wild, violent winds. We get battered by some of the biggest storms every year, in particular on the north coast. And it's cold. You know the temperatures are down to obviously minus zero various points of the winter and the water goes down to around about five degrees depending where you are on the coast so it's a pretty hardcore place to exist as a surfer if you want to you know be a, a full-time surfer surfing all year round yeah it's a pretty hardcore place does the cold ever not put you off uh, the cold never really puts me off in fact i think i actually really enjoy the cold like i like the worst i like the bad weather i, I love the wild in fact the sunniness probably puts me off because it, 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 when the sun's out here, obviously there's lots more people. The water's busier with people. The beaches are busier. I like the cold. I like the desolation and the isolation that comes with winter. And, you know, in particular, going offshore a little bit or going to places a little more remote. So, you know, the cold's just another element here. In fact, I really love um, the snow. I love surfing in the snow. And um, I was in Norway not so long ago, and I love being up there in the cold. So, yeah, like... It's just, it's what I've known since I was young. And to be honest, I, I can remember being a child here and walking back along the beach in the freezing cold winter, crying with my hand in my mouth, blowing on my hand, trying to warm my hands up. And then standing in the in the bathroom with my hands absolutely frozen cold, trying to warm them up with the cold tap because the, the warm tap was burning them so badly. So I suppose I've just become accustomed to the cold over over a long time. Yes, I have actually seen, I think it was an Instagram video of you putting on your wetsuit and it was literally frozen solid yeah. with ice. And I just thought, how on earth is he even going to put that on? Let alone I now know. go into cold, icy water as well. I know. It's funny because um, sometimes, some it's happened a few years, you'll see quite a lot of surfers wear gloves, just like a wetsuit. You know, surfers wear a wetsuit. We also have neoprene gloves and they're quite uncomfortable, to be honest. And I find I surf better without the gloves on, but it's obviously your hands are the coldest because they're, they're the extremities. And I will re literally refuse to wear the gloves all winter long just because I feel like I need to be a bit harder on myself. Uh, I need a bit more discipline, so I will choose not to wear the gloves, even though it's absolutely freezing. But it's funny, you do get so used to it, even you know after a handful of days surfing regularly in the winter, you, you just forget about the cold in your hands. It's funny. You're talking about the wild weather that we have here in Ireland and obviously with the big wave surfing that's really taken off in Ireland and people are, I think, are recognising it across the world as a big wave spot. What's the biggest wave that you've ever surfed here in Ireland? Uh, measuring waves to start with is a very difficult subject and it's a controversial subject. Um, it all depends on the perception and the angle that the person is seeing this from and, you know, Sometimes it's captured in a photo, sometimes it's captured in a video, sometimes it's just captured in my mind and, you know, my memory. So I would personally say I've ridden waves in excess of 60 feet in Ireland. And I think there was one day in the history of surfing here which really blew the doors open in terms of outsiders seeing in and what we had here. Like recently, like now in 2020, it's fairly well known that you can surf in Ireland and it's also pretty well known that you can surf really big scary waves here. 
But if you look back to December the 1st in 2007, at that time the biggest swell ever recorded in the Atlantic Ocean smashed into the west coast of Ireland. And when I rode that storm, it got international media coverage that actually led to me being invited to contests all over the world and events all over the world, purely because all of a sudden the world, the surf world and the mainstream media were looking into Ireland and they were seeing the waves we have here and the conditions we have here, but they were also saying that a local person here was capable of riding those waves. Previously to that, it was always believed these big waves really only existed in Hawaii and California and starting to become well-known in South Africa as well. So, yeah, I'd say that was the moment in time when the rest of the world started to get a real look inside here of what we have and the people that are capable of riding those waves. Are you finding there's a lot more people coming to visit Ireland specifically for big wave surfing now? There are definitely more surfers coming to Ireland specifically for big wave surfing. Most of the guys that are coming for big wave surfing are good big wave surfers from other countries. So it's the sort of top level athletes within their sphere in their country. So you've got, you know, Spanish guys coming and the odd American comes over and they're all very good high level surfers. But even, you know, and in down into the ordinary sort of realms of surfing, and um, not that not the big wave surfing is above another level of surfing, but just, you know, in terms of size, but there's more and more people interested in surfing and like we're talking today in 2020 and we've had several lockdowns this year and the like the amount of people that are now going into the water with from a pair of swim swim trunks on to having a boogie board to a surfboard to you know a paddleboard all sorts of different craft are now being used in the water because people are starting to appreciate the fact that we are on an island which i think is often forgotten and they are surfing here from tiny little waves to gigantic waves. So yes, surf tourism, if you want to call it that, is definitely on the rise here in this part of the world. You mentioned that uh, people are really taking to the water during lockdown. Do you think there has been a bit of a, a disconnect to the sea? You mean previous to that? Yes. Yeah. Previous to that, lock, the first lockdown, I don't know if I don't know if, if there was a disconnect to the sea as such. I think possibly more disconnect to nature in general. Like, I don't need to tell you, like, we all live very, very busy lives and um, we're all trying to do multiple things and we've all got family and friends, we've all got our own problems and sometimes you can forget about being outdoors and, again, not everyone can be outdoors. So I think maybe the lockdown that came along maybe slowed people down a little bit and made them more aware of what we have around us. And the sea is, yes, one element of that. But I think if you ask other people, you probably find that they didn't have the sea. They had the countryside or they had the mountains or whatever it may be. So I think it was not necessarily a disconnect to the sea, more of a disconnect to nature in general. And a lot of people have been commenting on the vast improvements in people's mental health from and benefiting from going out into nature more. And obviously with this podcast, talking to people who interact with the the waves and the sea and how that has benefited them personally i imagine it has had the same effect for you throughout your life yeah i imagine being outdoors in particular in the sea for me has most likely had a massive positive effect on my my you know mental health if you want to refer to it as that again it's very difficult for me to say one way or the other because i've been sort of connected to the outdoors since i was very very young primarily through the sea 
but I've never really been without it, if that makes sense. But incidentally, during lockdown, I was actually probably more removed from my natural environment than I was ever in my whole life. Um, I chose not to surf during lockdown purely because I wanted to make sure that, you know, unlikely, but if something happened to me, it wasn't going to take up the bed in the hospital that somebody else might need. I chose not to actually be in the sea and that was a that was a very unusual time for me. I can't remember if it was two or three months. It was two or three months at the time. I didn't surf. I didn't paddleboard. I didn't swim. The most I did was walk my dog by the sea. However, I did walk in the forest nearby here and I did some training in the forest. I did chin-ups and various things up there. But yeah, in actual fact, the lockdown was probably better for some people to connect with outdoors than me. I didn't really... Go- you know, I didn't go into my natural habitat that much because I was obviously concerned about taking a bed from somebody else if something was to go wrong, which it probably wouldn't, but just maybe and over the top maybe. But anyway. No, I, t- I totally get that. And uh, yeah, it's it's most people have been saying that during lockdown was their opportunity to get out more. And for you, it was the opposite. But obviously, because you were taking into mind the, the safety elements and and nobody wants to be calling out the Coast Guard or the RNLI or the ambulance service whenever there's a pandemic going on at the moment. And no. uh, coming back to uh, some of your other achievements, you have written several books and uh, <laughs> a man of many talents. And uh, wouldn't say talented. Them... <laughs> <laughs> and he's humble too. I, I can write loads of words, doesn't mean it's any good. <laughs> Well, one of those books that you have written is called Overcome or Succumb, Controlling Anxiety, Fear and Panic to Conquer Life, which I feel is very relevant at the moment. What inspired you to write that book? It basically, my my reason for writing that book came from somebody else that recognised something in me that I actually wasn't that aware of. I knew knew it, but I wasn't aware of it. It wasn't prominent in my mind. I was in a in a van, I think we were going to Donegal or something, we were going surfing, and um, with me was the paramedic guy that works with me, and he said to me, we were just chatting, cause he'd, he'd been with me for a couple of months at this stage, and he was aware that in the build-up to lots of these big wave events, if you want to call them that, or big storms that are coming, I go through a period of anxiety, I suppose would be the word, anxiety, uneasiness, uncertainty, and that's based on, you know, not not 100% knowing what the storm might do, not 100% knowing where it might be. Um, I might be concerned with somebody with me. It might be trying to decide what boards are best for the conditions and lots of different elements that, you know, I'm sure your listeners don't need to hear everything about. But, but yeah, I go through a period of being uneasy and uncertain on the build-up to this. And then on the day of, of this happening, I'm also still uneasy, but in different ways. I was trying to control all that you know, uneasiness, anxiety, fear, emotion, to overcome all that and achieve the goal in my mind of going out in these big wild seas and catching some, some big waves. And I know that sounds maybe so trivial to some people, but that's been my life. I've, that's what I've done. I've pursued in particular big waves for most of it. So when he said to me, "Do you, I we we he'd obviously been listening to me for a couple of months and going through the process with me on some of these days, and um, he said, "Do you realise that you are you're an expert at handling fear and anxiety?" And uh, and when he said it to me, I just I just thought about it for a second. I thought, actually, I do know a lot about this. I am 
pretty good at handling these things because never do I turn away from the thing I'm trying to do because I'm uneasy or I'm scared of it. And I will go on and I will push on regardless. So I've done that for a long time. And obviously I've developed my own ways of doing that. So that led me to then writing the book. And in the book I tell, it's more of an experience-based book. I tell my experience of, you know, for example, some of these big wild days and the emotions and the, the process and the roller coaster I've gone through and the build-up to them and the feelings I've felt on the day. But then I also use that and I explain how I've overcome other things in my life through learning that skill just by being in the sea. And yeah, so I talk about things like the dentist. Like I had this terrible fear of the dentist for ages because um, he like tried to put braces on my teeth. I didn't want them on my teeth when I was young. And it gave me some sort of traumatic experience that I didn't want to go back for 11 years. So I literally didn't go back for 11 years. Um, and then I like manned up and went in there and it was a horrendous experience. But anyway, I overcame it and I go back all the time now. So, but yeah, I relate, I relate my experience in the sea to other things in my life that I um, have used a similar sort of approach to and, and overcome eventually. And that's, that's basically what the book's about. But in the book, I, I talk about some of the things I do or I've done. And I try to make the reader think about how they might be able to overcome what they are facing in their own way. Because it, ultimately, there's no one answer for everybody. Like, the answer for you to live your life isn't the answer for me to live my life. We're all individual people. And, you know, you eat differently to me. I eat differently to you for different reasons. And um, you've got different emotions to me and in all these different we're all different differently made up and because of that my answers aren't going to be your answers but they may inspire you to find your own way forward and that's basically what what the book does and what i hope to achieve with it and it's been pretty rewarding to be honest because i do get people contact me saying look i've just been able to go to for example a bar and i know to lots of people that just sounds so silly but to this person that said about the bar they couldn't go to a bar. They were, they were anxious about being amongst so many people, or you know what it, what it, <clears throat> what might happen in that bar, or they've obviously had some sort of traumatic event in their life that's maybe led to that point. But through reading my book, they were able to find a way forward and overcome that. Um. So yeah, that was a long story, but that's basically where the book came from. But that's amazing to receive feedback like that from some of your readers, and I also think it's interesting because people might think big wave surfing is so far removed from my day-to-day life how can I apply what's in what he has learnt and his experiences to my everyday life but as you say it's everybody chooses their own path but you are just writing this book to inspire people to find their own and your experiences and how you've dealt with them because you know you have overcome a lot of challenges in your life you know apart from dealing with the stress of big wave surfing and uh, I think that's what people find that out in the book about you that's it's very applicable to experiences that people have themselves so yeah um, but I, I also think that um when people really stop and think about themselves and look at themselves they when you really when you really pay attention to what you've been through you can see little what might seem insignificant but you can see little challenges that you overcame without realizing there were challenges like nobody said, here's a challenge, overcome it. But you still, at some point in your life, have overcome things without really realizing it. And when you think about that, you can then realize that you actually have more confidence and more ability to do more things in your life than maybe you think at this moment in time. Do you understand what I mean? So I think um, 
yeah, that's in the book. I just try to make people think more about their life and be more aware of themselves. And and, and through being like that, it makes you do more. And you through doing more, you generally build confidence, and that allows you to overcome things more often. Going back to the big way of surfing, what's been probably one of your biggest achievements in your career so far? I think for anybody who is an outsider, so to speak, without, you know, beyond, you know, like somebody who doesn't know me, they would probably say my biggest achievement to date is probably being involved in the pioneering of a place in Portugal called Nazare, which is now a fairly well-known location for riding the biggest waves in the world. I'm sure lots of your listeners have been to Portugal and they know what Portugal's like. Like Nazare is like no is, is like a lot of the Portuguese towns or villages where there's, you know, the whitewashed buildings and the little white cobbles in the in the street and the white shutters and all the apartments and it's exactly the same as lots of the other towns and villages, but it has this unusual phenomenon of the headland nearby, um, where the biggest waves in the world break regularly. And it's the the funny thing is about this is that this wasn't discovered until very recently. The local people in Nazare for generations have known about the big, deadly, scary waves which existed on, it's called Praia do Norte, which is North Beach. So they've known of these, these conditions and they feared them because of, for generations, they've lost family members in the fishing community and people have been swept off the beach. It's a, it's a very, very intense place and it's almost unfathomable for somebody who isn't um, a surfer because it looks so different and it behaves so differently there to the waves and the beaches here on, you know, on the north coast of Ireland. And so to tell you how I ended up there, um, in 2010, I made contact with uh, a Hawaiian surfer called Garrett McNamara and he was actually in Portugal. He'd been invited there by the locals. The locals were trying to find some big wave surfer around the world who wanted to surf Nazare. And they were trying to set up a project down there in order to support that. And they were struggling to find somebody who was keen to do it for whatever reason. Garrett said yes. Garrett, however, was struggling to find somebody to do it with him. And in order to surf these really big waves, lots of the big waves around the world are mostly surfable using a surfboard. And I'm sure, you know, if you if you just imagine an ordinary surfboard, you know, it's just it's a I use a slightly different version of that most of the time. But when it comes to these really, really big waves, we use a system called tow-in surfing. And that involves a jet ski and a boat and the whole team of people. And that's ultimately what Garrett needed in Nazare. He needed a team of people to work with him. And there was a great land-based team down there forming with the local people, but there wasn't the, the surfers that Garrett needed. So anyway, he phoned me and I went down. Within the first year of the project, surfing big waves over and over again, a world record happened. And there was three of us, uh, my English partner and Garrett and I on the water. And then on land, there was about 15 different people. And together we were able to get Garrett where he needed to be in order to ride the biggest we've ever ridden. And the funny thing is about this, that this is, this, this is like right in front of this tourist town. This is right in front of this village. Thousands of people live there. There's thousands of people there um, in the summer. It swells as a tourist village in summer or a tourist town in the summer. And this went unridden for years until 2010. Um, and now it's got to the point where there are 
teams of surfers from all over the world camped out there. The whole harbour has been completely rebranded. There's all sorts of like companies on board, backing surfers, media teams. It's turned into literally the centre of big wave surfing around the world. In fact, there's been several other world records um, have taken place there now of, of the biggest wave ever ridden, both female and male, in the last 10 years. So yeah, I would say that's probably, from an outsider's point of view, what people would consider to be my biggest achievement or the thing I was involved in that's probably the most significant. You say most people would think that. Is there another achievement that in your life that you feel is just as important, but maybe not with surfing? There are. There's a, there's lots of other things that are maybe more important to me, but um, Joe Blogs and the, and the listen to this podcast doesn't need to hear them, I don't think. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, like, I, I personally... My with with surfing in particular, I I just I I feel fortunate that I've been able to continue to do this for so long. You know, lots of people end up you know in late in their late twenties, sort of setting the thing that they're really interested in to the side slightly as as other parts of life take over. Um, but I've been hell bent on refusing to do that, and um, I've been able to maintain my connection to the sea and my ability to be in the sea as often as possible. And I hope I can continue continue to do so later in life but yeah that's that's what I think is probably my biggest achievement today being able to continue to do what I like to do and love to do uh, on a daily basis. I think that's the dream for everybody and it's fantastic that you've been able to continue to do what you love. It is the dream to be able to do what you want to do but like life doesn't work like that you know everybody everybody doesn't not everybody lives the life they necessarily choose to live and although yes i've been able to do the thing i love you know regularly and on a daily basis you know there's still other elements of my life that aren't 100 percent you know the way i would want them as it is as that's true of everybody but i just feel like surfing and being in the sea close to the sea on the sea um is something which i think is of major importance to my life and my well-being in general so yeah i i always try to protect that ability to be in the sea at some point most days most of us are never going to experience what it's like to surf a 60 foot wave can you describe what it's like being in that moment when you see the wave approaching and you're sitting on the board waiting for it yeah so um if you imagine when you go to the beach and you look at the sea and maybe even go into the sea and the waves are washing around your feet and they're you know, it's moving and you can hear it breaking and you can hear all that motion and you can, it's freeing. You feel like you're out, you're outdoors and you're, you're in the environment and it's not like being at home. It's a totally different world. I go through that, but on a level where everything is magnified. So all those sounds you hear when they're splashing on your feet and you see the waves moving and the motion and the currents coming in and out and, you know, you hear the waves breaking everything I'm hearing whenever I'm out at sea in these big, big days is magnified. So everything's way bigger. The sound's way louder and the ocean's more vast. Um, the volume in the waves is bigger. Everything's just bigger. It's a bigger scale. And that's very, very freeing in itself because there's a vulnerability that comes with that. And you feel like you're, well, I feel like I'm really part of the environment when I'm out there and part of this whole thing. And I fit into it. So when I'm sitting there on my board out there and the sea's dark and there's like you can the surface is the surface is obviously always moving, it's always wobbling, and the dark sea is broken up with like streaks of white froth across it. 
and out in the, I'm looking at the horizon waiting for the waves to come through that I want to ride and some sometimes I'll see like you know swell line so we refer to um, an unbroken wave as a swell and it's not a wave until it starts to break so I, what I do is I, I watch the swell and I try to choose one I want to catch and ride and while I'm sitting there usually this is usually in winter this, these big waves usually happen in winter so the sea's dark the sky's dark it's big heavy overcast clouds quite often these big swell lines come out of the Atlantic and they're coming towards the coast they've travelled for miles and they're coming towards me and I'm trying to choose one as it comes. So I'll drift over one. I'll drift over another. And I'll choose, this might go on for 10 minutes. It might go on for an hour. And I'm trying to choose the best wave that will allow me to A, perform to the best of my ability. B, have a great experience out there. And, you know, three, feel rewarded, you know, and accomplished. And um, the adrenaline and all those different things that I'm out there for. So I'm, I'm trying to pick that swell line while sitting on my board. And eventually the one I want will appear. And that can be a scary moment in itself because all of a sudden there's the wave I want to catch and it's big and it's scary and it's far more powerful and it's got far more energy than I have. But I'm, I'm going to turn my board around and I'm going to catch that thing. And sometimes your head knows that this isn't really what a human being should be doing. But my heart's telling me something else, if that makes sense. And... I try and find the the balance of those two while I turn my surf, my surfboard around and point it towards shore. And in doing so, the wave still is approaching me, but it's to my back now. I'm trying to, I start to paddle my surfboard using my hands. So as I pull my hands through the water, that propels me forward. And I'm basically trying to get my, my board up to speed. And if you imagine the water's dark and it's chattering off the board and there's spray and there's wind and there's all this chaotic sort of stuff going on, almost like, you could imagine, like, if there was, like, explosions going off around you, there's, like, there's always noise and chaos, and you're trying to still do whatever you're trying to do. For me, I'm paddling through the sea, paddling through the water, and the water's lifting, the spray's there, there's sound, and I'm aware that there's this massive big wall of water coming behind me. And I'm trying to time it, that as, it, as it's about to break, I'm going to get to my feet. So as the wave starts to come behind me and lift me, and it gathers momentum it pulls me up it I rise up it and I'm trying to still keep momentum up to the point where I become part of the wave's energy and at that moment in time I stand on my feet and as soon as I stand on my feet I start to take the drop down the face we, we call it the drop because the waves the waves are now very very steep and I could be in a, a vertical position almost with the board pointing down the face of the wave and I'm trying to stay on the thing as it breaks and as I get my feet and I drop down the thing, the board then starts to chatter off the top of the wave as I drop down it. So if you can imagine, that can happen for two or three seconds as I, as I speed down the thing. As I speed down the wave, there's obviously wind howling past me. Um, I, I often don't hear any sound as soon as I get to my feet. The wave could be detonating beside me. A huge plumes of water are in, the, in, the, in my peripheral vision. I'm aware of it. I don't hear it for some reason. I, I tend to go into some sort of a, I don't know if it's survival mode or um, some sort of tunnel vision almost, but I tend to block out most other things other than what I'm really focusing on. And yeah, I can see in my mind's eye the beach in the distance or the headland or the cliffs in the distance um, and, the, and the dark colours around me, but I'm focused primarily on staying on my board as I, I'm hurtling down this thing at... I don't know exactly, but 
somewhere 30 to 40 miles an hour I assume yeah and then ultimately riding the wave and when the wave breaks and dissipates then I kick out if we refer to it as kicking out we push off the back of the wave and the wave goes um, so yeah that's that's the experience I go through and the the feelings you get after that if it's been a very big scary wave or a dramatic ride is a is an overwhelming feeling of a, 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 an achievement or an accomplishment and I'm sure like it's, it's just sound, I know surfing sounds so stupid to a lot of people and so um, trivial but that's a major achievement in my mind if I've caught a wave which I had to push my limits to do so or to um, overcome a fear or a moment of doubt in my mind so when you when I kick out of that wave it's a it's a it's almost like a yeah, it's a sense of achievement, I suppose. I am just totally absorbed in that uh, description <laughs> that you were giving of the wave. It felt like I was like really there with you, like watching it all. You've um, just done it now. I've done it. I don't need to do yeah, it. Yeah, don't need to do it. Those sound like some pretty hairy conditions that you're describing with the big waves. So it has to be uh, usually either during the winter and the the high winds and the dark skies and the sea. Are there any conditions that would actually put you off getting into the water? I'm very confident in the sea. Um, like I, I don't mean that in a way that you know I I am um, I'm feeling hundred percent in control because I know I'm not. I'm hundred percent not in control out there, but I do feel confident in my own ability and my knowledge of the sea, um, and that probably lends itself to, you know. I don't really ever feel that there's conditions that I, I wouldn't go out in, be that um, surfing or swimming or wherever it may be, paddleboarding. Um, but of course, certain conditions are better suited to certain activities and you know it's, it doesn't make any sense to go paddleboarding and howling onshore, you know, gale force winds. Of course, that's ridiculous. I'll go somewhere else and go paddleboarding. Um, it might make more sense to go swimming some days or surfing some days. So, you know, I've, I'm not like... You know, I'm tied. I'm not tied to anything in particular. You know, I, I I adapt to whatever the conditions are. As you say, that confidence that you have comes down a lot to experience, but there must be a lot of training involved as well. That that confidence, I suppose, that I have it is based on experience, like everything else in life. You know, if you've been doing something for you know several years, many years, I've been doing this for um I don't know thirty odd years now. Um. You develop confidence in it and it's natural um and it does come from from experience more so than anything else you know you can't get a bit of paper that can qualify you with experience you you only develop experience especially in the natural world through being out there and doing it and going through you know the different things that come along whenever you're in the natural world um and yes i do train i do train um generally and specifically for whatever I might be doing so um, for example if my focus is on paddling into big waves so basically just using a surfboard um, and using my arms and my hands only no no jet ski for toe surfing um, that involves me training slightly differently I train train for endurance I train for um, short burst you know um, power and also all that sort of side of things and then if I'm toe surfing, um, it changes a little more because I'm focused more on, um, like my back and my arms, being able to wrestle jet skis and, um, 
generally it's, there's a lot more strength work in that so i do train specifically yeah um and generally as well over the throughout the year but um the combination of experience and training makes the whole thing work much better but um it's funny because it, whenever i started all this big wave stuff big wave surfing was generally located only in hawaii and california at the time and it was very difficult to get any knowledge or any um information from anybody so it's taken me a long time to really um develop my training to suit what i do like for example um when i was like 16 or 17 that sort of age i would swam a kilometer every night went to the swimming pool i swam a kilometer every night and i thought that was really good training for surfing because you know of course you need to be a good swimmer um but in reality when i look back at that that wasn't that specific to what i was doing but i was probably quite um unaware of what i really you know needed to be fit for and um, and that's what training is based on you need to know what you're training for so that you can train effectively for it as time went on then i realized right i need to be um fit and agile not just in the pool so and then brought in um running through the sand dunes and then i would swim back through a kilometer along the beach i did that at castle rock on the north coast um and then i as time went on again i started seeing more stuff in hawaii and whatever and i went into there's a little pool which is um at the end of the beach at castle rock which is separated by a little sort of channel of rocks from the river and the pool is called the monk's pool and then I used to go in there and I used to carry rocks and sit in the bottom and swim along on the bottom of the, the, the seabed, hold my breath, but try and exhaust myself at the same time, replicating what it's like to be held down by a big wave, you know, in big surf. So as time went on, I had to develop my training plan based on my experience and my knowledge of big wave surfing. Anyway, there wasn't, you know, the facility to go onto YouTube or look up an encyclopedia and, and Google big wave surfing training that didn't that wasn't around whenever i started this um and the only the only resource i really had were videos and magazines and stuff like that which didn't tell me a whole lot to be honest so as the years have gone on my training's got far more specific um and one of my friends who was a is actually i think he still is a current and uh, natural world bodybuilding champion he came on board and um he's really helped me with diet um and because he also surfs and he's um been in boats and all sorts of throughout his, his, his life living in Portrush, um he was able to really understand what I was doing, what I was trying to achieve, and that made my training far, far more specific to what I'm doing um in big surf. This is possibly a, an obvious question for a, a big wave surfer, but have you had any close call moments where you thought mm, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this one probably one of my most significant um, falls if you want to call it that, wipeouts um, would be one that happened to me at Mullockmore Head in Sligo um, Mullockmore Head is um, quite an isolated location on the west coast of Ireland and uh, it's a big head and it sort of sticks out into Donegal Bay it's, um, it receives a lot of the big raging swells that we get at sea, but because it's positioned at a certain angle, it often allows the waves to be ridden at gigantic size in some of the worst um, weather conditions that we get. Um, and I had been surfing there for a long time before this wipeout happened. Um, and there wasn't very many surfers who had ever really surfed there at that time, only really a handful of us. 
Um, I can't remember exactly the year this happened, but it was somewhere, somewhere between two thousand seven, two thousand nine. I think it was. Um, uh, so the way this happened was, um, I had been toe surfing, which is as I explained earlier. Toe surfing is using a jet ski, um, and the jet ski driver drives me on the end of a rope like a water skier into the path of one of these giant waves and when i say giant waves this day it was like 40 to 50 feet kind of size um and i was toe surfing with an australian guy called paul and um paul drove me in like a northeasterly direction i think it would be somewhere around there northeasterly directions um across in front of the path of an incoming swell line and these big swell lines were like they're, they're they come from the, the obviously way out in the atlantic the, from the eye of the storm so to speak um and they're big and they're dark and they often block the horizon as they approach so paul paul has fired the ski up and he was driving across parallel to this incoming line of swell and we use a markup out there, which marks up the shallowest point of the reef with um, the shoreline lined up with a lamppost and um, the harbour wall in the distance. So Paul Paul's job is to drive the ski parallel to this incoming wave and time it to drift up over the back of the wave, just just in front of the shallowest, shallowest part of the reef. And as he pulls the ski up over the face of the wave and up over the top of it, I pull on the rope and propel myself down into the the bottom of the wave and then ride the thing. That's the plan. And um, Paul did a brilliant job, perfectly drove me and um, I let go of the rope and started propelling down the face of this thing. And for some reason, I remember, I remember feeling that at the time I hadn't been committing that day enough. I was trying to really commit to putting myself in the most critical part of the wave, the most, you know, the most the steepest part, possibly the most dangerous part of the wave. Um, I wanted to try and make the ride as, you know, significant as I could to myself. And um, so anyway, when I looked at the rope, I was going down this thing really, really fast. And in order to, in order to not outrun the wave and just in order to stay within the most critical part and the steepest part of the wave, what I generally do is I go straight to the bottom and I go straight down the face you know, to the bottom of the wave it allows the wave to grow really tall and, and stand higher and higher behind me um, and then at the last minute I would bottom turn and drive my surfboard back up the face of the wave that was what I was planning on doing and as I started going down the thing um, I glanced up over my right hand shoulder and I could see the wave standing like vertical behind me and the, the lip the crest of the wave feathering way way above me just the white frost on top of the big dark black wave and um then i glanced up over my left shoulder and it was virtually the same thing so i knew i was as critical as possible i was right in the, the most critical part of this wave um and what happened next was i i sort of I mistimed my bottom turn and it's it's a critical thing because if you mistime the bottom turn 
you haven't got enough speed or energy to propel yourself back up the face of the wave and then ride the thing across it. And basically, a combination of my mistiming and misreading the wave, um, I ended up in a in too much too deep in the wave. We refer to it as too deep, so it's basically too critical. And I had no option at this point but to either run straight out in front of the wave and hope that it came down behind me and not on top of me or to attempt and drive my board up the face of the wave and just see how I, see how I go and the the I look back up and the wave is coming down on top of me now this, I'm, I'm explaining this like it took several minutes to happen it didn't this is happening in seconds but my mind was so slowed down to the whole thing absorbing all this information I assume that I can recall it in you know nanoseconds type thing, and um, yeah. So basically, I looked up and the wave came down over me, and I was still going straight. I, I was trying to outrun the thing, and um, I wasn't. It was like kind of slipping through, and you know, um, in Indiana Jones where he like slips under the the falling doors and the caves all the time. It was kind of like that. I was trying to get myself out enough in front of this wave before it came down and shut down um, over the front of me. And that didn't happen. I got stuck on the other side of that falling door, so to, so to speak. So it came down in front of me. And um, so you imagine this massive wave, like 40 feet high or something, has completely thrown itself over the top of me and has, has like, encapsulated me inside it. I'm still standing on my surfboard, but I'm going in the wrong direction and going straight towards the, the back of the big curtain that's just fallen. And... In the same split second, I decided I need to get off my board. If I stay on my board, this thing's going to collapse and put me through my board. Um, and I could be potentially really seriously injured. So I stepped off. And in stepping off, I went obviously under the water. And then the whole wave just like detonated and annihilated me. Just <gasps> ragdolled me. Um, yeah, very, very violently, violently underwater. Um, in fact, I distinctly remember... I, I wear like a glass fiber helmet, like a slim fit glass fiber helmet. And I distinctly remember feeling like, um, kind of like it was like a bucket almost. And it was being pulled, like, you know, my chin strap was being pulled into the bottom of my jaw. And the helmet was trying to be ripped off the top of my head. Um, yeah, and I was getting ragdolled severely underwater. And I remember then something glanced off the side of my head. And I wasn't sure at the time if it was the bottom because these these waves break over a reef like off the end of this headland and um, there's big slabs of rock which sort of um drop off into the depths of Donegal Bay and obviously the Atlantic um and they come to within you know a meter or two of the surface and drop off to like 50 meters or whatever so I wasn't sure if I'd hit the bottom um which in all the years previous to that surfing at Mullachmore I had never done um or had my board hit me in the head and my, my, the board I was using was um, it's, a, it's what we call a tow board um, and it's slightly different to surfboard because we have foot straps on them and they're weighted and they're weighted for speed and momentum the, the, the weight of the board kills the chop on the face of the wave so if there's wind coming up it or um, turbulence from rock boils under the water coming up the, the surfboard will go at high speed and maintain that speed through the chop the chop doesn't um, throw the board up in the air so much so um, I had either hit the rocks under the water or I had been hit in the head by my 9 kilogram surfboard making its way to the surface. Um, I later heard from um, one of the guys around the safety 
um, Mikey that he saw my board vertical high in the sky behind the wave so I assume it had been ejected out the back of the wave and it went way up into the air so that's probably what hit me in the head anyway I eventually surfaced um, through the froth and you got to understand whenever these waves break um, like if you go to the beach and you look at the waves breaking you see see white froth behind it well if you you know multiply that times 40 or whatever the froth sitting after a wave of that size is you know can be two foot deep so whenever I surface, I've got to be very careful that the froth is clear. I'm not going to suck in any of this froth, and when I'm trying to get a breath for a breath of air, and at the same time, my rescue um, or my tow partner Paul, he was coming to try and find me, and uh, I could see him. I was obviously obviously under for so long that um, he had, as I surfaced, he'd passed me in the ski, and I had my hand in the air, and I had an orange helmet on, but I was only so deep in the foam he couldn't see me, and he went past me. And within seconds, the next wave hit me. It just broke in front of me, and then detonated. And one, obviously, back back out, back down. I went into the blackness of the water and getting spun around and all the turbulence again. And only this time, I'm obviously a little more depleted now because I've I've already held my breath and gone through um, quite a severe beating already, and I've ridden the wave. So all that has drained me to a degree. And now wearing the second one on the head. And. Um, it's funny because sometimes the second wave really, really um, can deplete me a lot more in terms of you know energy and oxygen and bloodstream. But at the same time, if I'm lucky enough, it will blast me out of the impact zone. So if I did surface again and there's a third wave, I would be hopefully further ashore. And the third wave coming, it would be it would have dissipated quite a bit by the time it gets to me. The other side of that is as well that I was wearing. I think I was wearing two impact vests that day and sometimes nowadays I even wear three and they're basically a vest that I put on over my wetsuit. It's like a life jacket I suppose, um, only it's not really designed for flotation although it does add some flotation and buoyancy. It's designed for impact um, but the combination of the ones I wear ends up being relatively buoyant. But the thing about that is then I'm so buoyant that whenever the next wave is breaking in front of me I can't swim under it. I can get it. I can just about get under the surface for a second or two before I would pop back up. Um, but that buoyancy is a double-edged sword. Then it doesn't allow me to swim down um, out of the safety, you know, into the the depths below the wave. Um, but it it saves me at times too. It keeps me afloat. So it's a double-edged sword having um all that gear on. Anyway, eventually, um, a South African guy who was with me as well, Duncan, um, he saw the whole thing unfolding and thought, right, Paul's missed me. Um, we're gonna go in and get him. He actually took another guy with him, a guy from uh, Sligo. So it was Duncan and Dave Lavelle. They went in after the second wave, between the third and the second wave, to get me because they thought obviously that it's potentially you know quite a serious situation. So, um, they came in and they got in the sled and we went back to the the safety of the deep water channel where the waves don't break. And <clears throat> this this happened in March and. March is at the end of the season, generally, for big wave surfing here. And I was aware that between March and sort of October is a long time to think it was something like that. You know, I'd just gone through a fairly fairly serious wipeout. Um, you know, when I surfaced after the first first wave, I had blurred vision and I couldn't hear properly. Um, so I'd gone through quite a serious wipeout and I was pretty depleted, to be honest. 
but I was aware that if I sat for the period between March and October, I potentially not that, it, that not that I knew I would or that I'd ever experienced this before, but I thought that there's potential that this this might start to get into my mind and bother me. So, um, when Paul came back out in the ski after trying to find me, he got he collected my board and came back out and got me. Um, I got onto the ski with him and I had about a five minute breather, and I said to Paul, "We're going again," and he's like, "Right, let's go." And um. At the same time, I'm sure a lot of what I was about to do didn't make a lot of sense um, because of what I've just gone through, but there's a real element of getting back on the horse when something like that happens to you. Um, so within about five or ten minutes, Paul got me, put me on. Uh, actually, I rode two more ways um, that day, and I didn't fully commit the way I did in the first one. Um, I surfed them far more conservatively, but I went on two more um, ways that day. and. Just got back on the horse, so to speak, and got on with it. And the the wipeout never bothered me since, you know. So, um, not that it would have, or it may not have ever bothered me, but I wasn't going to take that chance. Um, so yeah, but actually, I then went to um, the Letter Kenny General Hospital because we discovered that the impact that I took on the side of my head underwater had actually cracked my helmet, and the helmet was cracked about an inch and a half up the back of the helmet. I I think. I spoke to the people that made the helmet and they said it's an exit. Um, it's the it's the impact exiting the helmet. So it's quite often they don't crack where they're hit, they crack somewhere else. Um, so it's this impact of travel through the helmet and cracked at the back. Um, so I ended up in Larry County Hospital just for a quick checkup because I was probably concussed. Um, something else drove me and whatever. So yeah, anyway, that's probably the worst that's happened to me in Ireland to date, I think. That comes to mind. Oh my goodness! I just I can't even fathom how scary that would be. And I know that you talk a lot about you know managing that that fear and that and that stress when you're in those situations, and even the simple things of coming up to the surface, and your instinct would be to take a big gasp of air. But remembering not to do that um yeah i suppose it's uh there's a lot of lessons to be learned in just general water safety there as well but that helmet possibly saved your life that day so that's an incredible story i've always kind of had a helmet um in my surfing gear um even as a kid i remember surfing the first time i ever surfed the reef which is quite a significant thing for for a kid you're used to surfing beach breaks where there's just sand on the seabed but lots of the the best waves break over rock, and um, I was fourteen and I remember surfing in Bandoran, and I had a, a helmet on then, and you know as I as I surfed you know more and more, um, waves of consequence I suppose you would say they are, um, I tended to wear my helmet, and there's been other instances where I've, um, been hit in the head or hit the reef, and I remember I remember falling one time with a helmet on me. Um, and another spot just south of Bindorn, um, a long time ago. I don't even think I could drive. I think it was maybe 15 or 16 at the time. It was quite big, and I fell and hit my head in the board, hit my head in the reef, and I ended up in hospital with, um, uh, what do you call it, whiplash, and I, they had me doing all these exercises. But anyway, so yeah, the helmet has been always in my surfing sort of kit to some degree. Um, 
as time's gone on they've got better like the one i wear now is made by a company called gecko and they're glass fiber so um they're designed you know specifically for the job in hand they're very very good so um there's a lot of them a lot of them are plastic which wouldn't be maybe as as good but um yeah so i've always kind of had a helmet in my gear have you got any advice for anybody thinking of taking up surfing if you are serious about taking up surfing right um my number one piece of advice is get a big board and by a big board i mean something in the region of about um nine feet to ten feet that sort of size to be honest it's almost true that the bigger the board the better um, the bigger the board, the more volume in the board, the wider the board, the more waves you'll be able to catch and the more fun you'll have. There's nothing worse than seeing somebody who's been to a surf shop and they've been sold some, you know, flashy surfboard that Kelly Slater or some champion surfer would, would ride. Um, you know, like there's lots of people on, on the local beaches here who have boards which probably aren't the best boards for these conditions around here, but they're the boards that they've got. Um, my, honestly, if you're starting out, um, Look for a board like that, big board, nine to ten foot sort of size, and get a second hand. Like there's, they, there's no need to buy a brand new board. Get a second hand. You can spend um a hundred, two hundred pounds on a good second hand board that um will do the same job as a brand new one. Um, and also wetsuits. Like I, I personally wear boots all year round. I'd prefer the grip I have with boots. Um, unless I'm paddleboarding, I use paddleboarding bare feet, but I tend to wear boots all year round, um, and in winter I wear like the best wetsuit I've, I, you know, there is out there. It's it's actually custom made for me, but you don't need that. You can, you know, you can get good wetsuits online. Um, I would personally advise getting a winter suit, regardless of what time of year you're going in. It's always better to be safer than sorry. Um, so you know something around five millimeters thick is generally um best place to go with a wetsuit. Um, but yeah, look. Definitely, I am firm believer in big boards and warm wetsuits. Um, save the the short fancy boards whenever you get better, and um, progress slowly down to that. Don't cut from a nine foot board down to a six foot one surfboard. Um, in the first step, you need to gradually get cut them down. You know, over three or four different sizes over the years, and it does take years. It's not like you'll go out tomorrow and be able to whack a golf ball or kick a football in the back of the net. Um. You, know, you might go out for several sessions before you even be able to stand a surfboard. It takes a long time. So um, don't be dis- discouraged by um, going out several times and not really being able to stand up with anything. It does take quite a long time. So final question I have for you, Al, is what is the best thing about your local waves? One of the best things about the local waves we have on the north coast here in uh, Northern Ireland is that we're positioned in the North Atlantic in a very favourable location. Um, we're open to all sorts of sizes of um, swells and conditions um, throughout most of the year, to be honest. Um, and we've got various beaches which handle all different types of conditions. Um, you know, some of the beaches are better in big days, some of the beaches are better in small days. Um, so we have a we have a wide variety of um, locations to go surfing and they all have their day no matter what time of the year it is and um, we also have you know in, in surfing we talk about an offshore wind and we have because of where, we, where, where we're positioned here we have a prevailing offshore wind which means it's the most common wind um, which blows from 
pretty much southwest, southwest, southwesterly direction, which blows offshore nearly all our beach breaks here, and um, that leads to the waves standing taller for longer and coming closer to shore. So it makes the waves steeper and it makes the waves often hollower. When when I say hollower, I mean they create like a cavern inside them as they break. They create a cavern. We call it a tube. Um, and the better surfers can can ride that tube. It, it, it just it gives very good conditions. So we have a lot of good conditions for a lot of the year here. Um, and when the stormy days blow through or the flat spells come through, they generally don't last that long because we're we're quite exposed up here. Um, now, if we lived, if we if the north coast was on the west coast, that'd be a different story. It would be would be open to a lot of very very raw swell. Um, and the winds aren't as favourable out there because obviously they're close, predominantly faces west. So the wind, the prevailing wind, would be coming across the shore more often than not. Whereas up here, it's offshore. So we have we've got great conditions here. Um, yeah, and it seems to be nowadays, lots more people are taking advantage of it. It's become very common now um, to go surfing. Like I remember for years surfing here, and if you saw a surfer drive past you, you waved at them. Now you see a surfer driving past in the road, no one takes any notice, it's just another another surfer going past, there's so many people doing it, so things have really changed, there's a lot of people um, who've really got into surfing, in particular this year, in 2020, 2021. Um, yeah, it's very, um, it's very accessible, it's relatively cheap to get into, um, and all our beaches here are, are pretty user friendly to be honest, so yeah, it's good. it's a good sport to be involved in, if you want to call it a sport I suppose. There's so many great beaches that we have in Northern Ireland and for a variety of different activities in the water. And uh, it's great to see that so many people are getting out into the water at the moment and getting to use it. Uh, thank you so much, Al, for talking to us today. And uh, I think you got a real insight into what it's like for you and the big waves that you surf. And uh, interesting to hear about how you approach them and uh, overcoming all the stress and anxiety. I think it's particularly relevant at the moment, but thank you so much for talking to us today. No worries, Claire. Thank you very much for having me again. It was great to listen to Al talk about his experiences and his description of waiting for a wave and then surfing it in was so absorbing that I almost forgot I was supposed to be asking him questions. If you want to find out any more about Al's projects, you can check out his website and social media. In the next episode, we catch up with Ian McCarthy from SUPHUB NI and talk all things paddleboarding and the benefits of the North Down coastline for water-based activities. Now we are going to listen to one of Al's local waves, White Rocks, along the North Coast. This recording was made on a cold, breezy day in early January, where the afternoon sun had broken through the cloud to shine a warm glow on the white rocks that surround the beautiful beach there.
The Local Waves podcast was created by National Museums NI in partnership with the Northern Ireland Science Festival. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review to help others discover it for themselves. To find out more about the Ulster Transport Museum and our collections, visit our website at nmni.com. Thank you.